Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Steve Orleans, president of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm thrilled today to be joined by my old friend and mentor, uh, Chung Li, who is director of the John L. Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institution. When I say he's my mentor, when I have questions about elite politics in China, I call Chung Li and say, you know, who is this person? What uh, what should I be thinking? How, what should I be doing? But today, um, we will cover some of that. But he is the author of a very recent book called Middle Class Shanghai, Reshaping U.S.-China Engagement. I just completed, or I completed it this past weekend, and it is an absolute must-read. Um, he goes back to his childhood home, Shanghai. He talks about the role of Shanghai in kind of China's formation of policy, the role of people from Shanghai, talks about what's going on in Shanghai and really, uh, I think, makes a compelling case for how we need to look at China when we formulate US-China relations in a much more nuanced way. Um, if I listed all of Chung Li's publications, we wouldn't have time for the program, but like all of his publications, it contains unique data sets, which he compiles and which sheds incredible light on what's going on in China and the way we need to think about US-China relations. So thank you for the book, Chung Li. Thank you for all you have done for increasing understanding of China in the United States. Thank you for your service on the board of the National Committee on US-China Relations. And thank you for being such a great friend. So let me start out the program uh, with a question, which is, this book was a long time in the making. Why this book? Why now? And why did it take you 10 years to write it? It's pretty big, but it didn't justify 10, pretty long, but it doesn't justify 10 years. Well, thanks, Steve, for that overly generous introduction. You are my mentor. You know, I'm honored to have the opportunity to exchange views and ideas with you and with the distinguished audience of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Now to your three-part question. First, why this book? I believe that among the many forces shaping China's domestic transformation and its role on the world stage, none may prove more significant than the rapid emergence and explosive growth of the Chinese middle class. At the center of this story uh, in China is the city of Shanghai. My study of Shanghai reflects an overall theme, which is Shanghai is not a monolithic entity. And certainly China is not either. Middle class Shanghai actually reveals China's unsettled future because even Shanghai modifies what I call two tails of a city. Now, in my view, Shanghai was, is, and will be paradoxical. Historically, Shanghai was the most westernized Chinese city. 
but it was also the birthplace of the CCP and the center of the Maoist uh, radicalism during the Cultural Revolution, you know, um, during which I grew up. Presently, Shanghai is often regarded as the frontier city of the market reforms, opening up and the cosmopolitanism. But at the same time, the city is also seen as the, what the Chinese call the head of dragon in China's industrial policy and the state capitalism. And finally, for the future, Shanghai can serve as the vanguard of the middle class worldly voices, views, and the values. Yet this city may increasingly become the showcase of China's growing nationalism and the mercantilist global outreach. Now, my point here is that uh, we should place Shanghai's future and the China's future in an over in an ever-changing domestic and international context. It is neither predetermined nor stagnant. Now, this leads me to your second part of the question, why now? Unfortunately, the ongoing policy and the, uh, the political discourse on China in the United States today disproportionately focus on Beijing, on the Chinese authoritarian system, on the China threat, on the fatalistic view, often threatening the most, I mean, also uh, treating the most populous country in the world in a monolithic way. Now, a study of Shanghai and especially its dynamic middle class, I hope, can challenge this narrative and broaden our perspectives and the policy choices. Now, why 10 years? It is embarrassing to have spent 10 years writing this book. Although I completed five other books, uh, including edited or co-edited volume during these uh, 10 years. An important reason that it took such a long time to complete this, um, um, you know, um, uh, is actually by design. The idea was to conduct a longitudinal survey of foreign educated elites in Shanghai, which, um, you know, uh, with one survey uh, every two or three years for three surveys altogether. Uh, as we know, it was become increasingly difficult uh, in recent years to conduct survey research in China for a foreign scholar like myself, even though uh, these surveys were uh, commissioned by a Chinese survey firm with a limited number of participants. I completed only uh, two surveys instead of the three uh, that had been planned. Uh, Steve, if I may, I want to use the one minute or, two, or a couple of minutes. I would like to share with you the story about the, what triggered me to write this book at the first place. As I described in the prologue, a very powerful avant-garde art piece by Wang Yongping at the 2000 Shanghai Piano, uh, you know, held in the Shanghai Art Museum, inspired me to rethink global integration at the time of destructive confrontation. Let me show you a few slides because it's a, it's a uh, very important uh, to, um, to know this. Now, this is uh, the, the piece, the replica of the most famous, one of the most famous buildings in Shanghai. And uh, first is occupied the HSBC uh, almost 100 years ago. Now that, bit, uh, that exhibition, uh, it's, a, it's a material, it's a sand. Uh, it has a very interesting name, uh, Bank of Sand and the Sand of a Bank. Um, it just got the, uh, the best award in that uh, exhibition. And, um, but the, what is intriguing of this 
um, the landmark uh, building is in the Republic is during the exhibition is gradually drying and disintegrated. Now, uh, this is another uh, uh, photo uh, in a different exhibition. This is the famous building, HRC, HSBC uh, building. Now, the, this award, um, um, the, the, the artwork, you know, um, certainly um, try to make a point um, that the, the we should also look at the both the impressive impact and the potential disastrous effects of globalization. Now, uh, as we know that, uh, that uh, not only the, the Bank of HSBC headquarters, but also in the 19, since 1996, become uh, the headquarter of another bank, the Putong Development Bank, which really led to uh, the birth and the growth of the China's Manhattan in the Putong. So it's a highly, highly symbolic. Now the impact of uh, pivotal events in this century, whether it be the 9-11 terrorist attack um, in the United States, the 2008 global financial crisis, and most recently the COVID-19 global pandemic, uh, as well as the rapid deterioration of the most important bilateral relationship, have all collectively reaffirmed Wang Yongping's sentiment and the fear of the devastating shocks and the after effect that stem from an increasingly interconnected world. Still, in a real sense, these two recent events drove me to complete this book now. Over to you, Steve. Uh, so the book kind of implores, the whole theory of the book, it implores uh, policymakers that have a, a more nuanced approach to our, to our China policy, you know, taking into account exactly what you say, just said, the middle class, the, the middle class in Shanghai, which is such a diverse group and kind of focus some of its attention on that rather than what you just said, Beijing. So what are our policymakers getting wrong? Well, you're right. The thesis of my book runs uh, contrary to prevailing view in Washington regarding the failure of the US engagement policy toward China. Um, there are several main components of these negative views, for example, viewing China as a monolithic entity with no distinction between state and society, the so-called a whole of society threat, we're familiar with that term. Now also viewing the Chinese middle class as the political ally of the party state without recognizing the dynamism and the diversity of this new socioeconomic force and its transitory political role, which I will call, and also viewing the large number of the PRC students and the scholars in the United States as a spies being weaponized by Beijing and therefore assuming bilateral educational exchange benefit only China and may undermine American supremacy and American security. Now this book certainly challenges these distorted views and the resulting wrong policy, which are called wrong policies. The book argued it is premature to announce that the US engagement policy with China under the eight presidents prior to the Trump, uh, prior to the Trump administration has failed. According to my, uh, our friend uh, and Brookings uh, colleague, uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Bader, who served as the senior director of Asia in the Obama White House National Security Council, he actually wrote uh, in 2016, I quote, East Asia has avoided major military conflicts since the 1970s. Uh, after the United States fought three wars in the preceding four decades, 
originating in East Asia with a quarter of a million lost American life. This is no small achievement, end quote. In Beta's view, abandoning the engagement policy will likely enhance the risk of war in the region. I'm afraid that the precious peace in the region may come to an end if we do not stop this kind of uh, 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 trajectory. Now, uh, so over to you. This is the, uh, what I believe that the policy went, long, uh, went wrong. I, my book is a really humble effort to provide a, a different angle based on the culture front and from the perspective of people to people relations. So the Biden administration should not be announcing the end of the era of, of constructive engagement. That is not helpful to- Absolutely, I was, I was really surprised to see, you know, I understand that the Trump administration already determined to really uh, to uh, uh, contain China uh, in this, I mean, or even destroy China from the Beijing's perspective in the same way like uh, we destroy the Soviet Union. But uh, the world has changed that China is not a uh, Soviet Union. This is not what I said, but many world leaders, including American allies and German chancellor, British prime minister, uh, Singaporean uh, prime minister. I mean, these are American friends and allies. Uh, you are, certainly there are a lot of Americans, people like you and, you and, you and me, uh, very uh, cynical about this end of uh, engagement. We can create a different kind of engagement. We should uh, uh, probably uh, put a different emphasis. And But uh, to say the end of engagement, it's a little bit uh, a surprise to me for yeah. the Biden administration. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I as you know, I completely agree with that. And what puzzles me is exactly Jeff's point that nobody focuses on it. That, you know, when I first went to Asia in 1972, exactly what Jeff said, 250,000 American soldiers had died on the battlefields of Asia in the prior four decades. And since this constructive engagement, no Americans have died on the yeah. battlefields of Asia. And that is not a coincidence. The idea that that is not a, a result of constructive engagement is I think not, a, not, not, good, not good policy for the American people and certainly not good policy yeah for people who potentially could die in a war. Let's, we'll go back to these issues, but I wanna focus some on part of what I so love about the book and all of your books is kind of the data that you kind of compile. And I think to, to me, and I know a lot about this, it's, it's very, very interesting. You have fascinating numbers on Shanghai's effect on the Politburo and the standing committee, the number of people who have served in Shanghai, which clearly is the most international city within, within China. I mean, there's no question that it is. And you have numbers and what effect they've had on Chinese policy making. So talk, can you give us some of those numbers, kind of wet people's appetite for, for getting the book and talk about the contrast between the percentage in the Central Committee versus the Politburo and the Standing Committee? Okay. Um, well, um, certainly that um, throughout the contemporary history, Shanghai always held an important position in China's economic, political, social, and cultural life. Of course, uh, some uh, leaders are considered a good leader, some consider as bad leaders, you know, based on, you know, really uh, different values. For example, we know that in Shanghai, 
there's a, a, a gain of four uh, uh, also come largely come from Shanghai, including Mao's widow. But also there's some good leaders in, in China's history, you know, in PRC history, like the former foreign minister of Chen Yi and the former uh, premier Zhu Rongji. Now, for the oh. audience that's not that, the, the Gang of Four you're referring to is the, yeah, is the Cultural Revolution yeah, right. Gang of Four of Wang Huwen, Zhang Huqiao, Yao Wenyuan. Um, so, yes, so Shanghai has produced some great leaders. Yeah. They've also produced some of the worst. That's right, that's right. Now, um, you know, uh, this is again reaffirmed what I said that, that, uh, that uh, the, uh, Shang, uh, it's a, a tales of two cities uh, in that regard. And time again, uh, in virtually all major phase of the PRC history, you know, socialist transformation, you mentioned the cultural revolution, reform and opening up, and the China search for global superpower status. Shanghai has prove, proved to be a critical ideological and the political battlefield, too important to lose uh, to, uh, to competing forces. Now in the book, a chapter epigraph uh, features a quote, you probably still remember a quote by Zhu Rongji. He, uh, he said, uh, it's not the Shanghai people are smart, it's the, that the smart people come to Shanghai. Now for, uh, for seven consecutive years between 1988 and 1994, uh, Deng Xiaoping spent the spring festival holidays in Shanghai, uh, which helped him appreciate Shanghai's cosmopolitan legacy and the distinct uh, culture, especially the large pool of talent. Now, during his stay in Shanghai in 1990, Deng Xiaoping uh, stated uh, that, uh, actually this is a direct quote, he said, one of my big mistakes was I did not include Shanghai when I launched the four special economic zone in 1980. Now that same year, Shanghai launched its historical plan for developing Pudong. Now Shanghai has enjoyed the strong political backing of powerful uh, patrons in Zhongnanhai and um, an all powerful political elite faction known as the Shanghai Yan, uh, you know, uh, informally established in 1990 by the then uh, uh, party secretary Zhang Zemin, later dominated the national leadership, uh, especially 25% uh, power bureau and the seven to nine person Power Bureau Standing Committee. As we know, the Power Bureau Standing Committee is the real, uh, the most powerful leadership body. So in the uh, last, um, you know, it's, it's a third, third tier is the 370 plus members of Central Committee. And the Shanghai leaders are, are not too many, uh, probably it's only a few percentage. But uh, in, the, in the Power Bureau and the most powerful Power Bureau Standing Committee, uh, Shanghai people has a huge uh, representation since 1990. Now, at the present, the Shanghai Gang remains as an important force within Xi Jinping's political coalition. Now, Xi Jinping is not the Shanghai Gang per se, but he also used, rely on many of the Shanghai leaders. Now, let, let's see, the, uh, let me show you um, a, a, a chart that I think is very, quite a review yeah. uh, to that. Now, this is the, Power Bureau Standing Committee um, over actually 30 years. Um, uh, the Power Bureau Standing Committee could be seven, could be nine. Now the first number is the representative those from Shanghai. Either born in Shanghai, most often they advance their career in Shanghai, through Shanghai. So it's a 40, 43% for the 1992, then 29%, 33%, 22%, 
29%, these are all very significant. These are usually general secretary or uh, premier uh, or, or both uh, or national uh, people's congress and et cetera. Now, the last line is expected. This is, as we know, that next year they will have a very important 20th party congress. We do not know whether it be seven or nine. Um, I tend to think it will be nine because there's so many people you know, wanted to have that position, want to get promoted, particularly younger generation. So I, I'm not sure, but let's say it's nine. Um, these five people uh, who from Shanghai or uh, advanced career from Shanghai, um, including Xi Jinping, although his tenure in Shanghai is only eight months, but he certainly uh, promoted a lot of people from Shanghai, including his current chief of staff. This is number uh, uh, the three people, the third person uh, is Ding Xuexiang, highly likely uh, he currently is his chief staff, and uh, Li Chang is the party secretary of Shanghai, and uh, these two people will move to the Power Bureau Standing Committee, most likely. Another person is uh, currently Guangdong party chief, uh, Li Xi. He also spent a few years in Shanghai as deputy party secretary, organization head, and uh, etc. Now, we do not know whether Han Zheng or Wang Funing, uh, whether they will stay, on, uh, uh, stay or not. We do not know for sure. But let's say that one of them will stay, so it's maybe five. This will be fifty-six percent, and these people will stay in power for the next for a longer period. That also I want to go to detail. So this talk about the power of Shanghai, and also that uh, I think there's a reason we need to pay attention to Shanghai leaders because sometimes their policy is a little bit different from those from inland because of the cosmopolitan experience and etc. Now let me give you some. Some examples that um, you know uh, during the Taiwan Street crisis, that encounters so many some hawkish uh, leaders uh, in inland China. The Shanghai leaders, like particularly the mayor at that time, Xu Kuangdi, your good friend, he's uh, asked people calm down. Particularly our Taiwanese, there are lots of Taiwanese living in Shanghai. Uh, I still I do not remember. Currently, still there's some. Uh, a relatively big size of Taiwanese community. They ask him to stay on, uh, stay, stay in Shanghai. Don't worry, business will continue. And um, you know, basically the message is we are not going to use force. Don't be, don't uh, you know, overreact or scared by the things. The same things you can see that with some incidents in the, under Zhang Zemin, who really uh, 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 have strong ties with Shanghai. He could be seen as a Shanghainese, although he's from born in the nearby area. But uh, he he loved uh, you know the Shanghai culture and really promoted the cosmopolitan Shanghai culture. He actually uh, under his watch there's some incidents, including the Taiwan presidential election that the crisis. Then the Belgrade uh, the uh, Belgrade embassy bombing in 1999 and also EP3 2001. So he basically um, uh, restrained largely. So that's the 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 things that I want to emphasize. So we still should think about it that way. Over to you. It's it's um, it's remarkable. I, mean, I always think about it. How do, when you kind of try to explain the Shanghai bomb, is that a uniquely kind of Chinese experience, or is it possible like you, we would had times in America when the cabinet of the United States was all from Virginia or all from New York or or all from Boston, Massachusetts, or so, especially in the early years. But it's it's really, I mean. 43, 56, 40, that, those are amazing percentages. Oh yeah, I mean, you talk about Virginia, Boston, New York, I want to add Chicago and Obama's 
you know, White House, his administration, really a lot of Chicago people joined the administration. I don't want to give the name, but that's, a, so it's not unique. I mean, it's, it's quite common. It's the, it's the partly it's a patron client ties, political networking, partly it's related with the, the, the importance of the urban centers and uh, including the talents and many other things. So again, Steve, we are excellent question. I think uh, uh, we should put it in the perspective. It's not uniquely Chinese, uh, but certainly Shanghai, you know, over the past 100 years, it's even before the communist regime, you can see that Jiang Jingguo, I mean, under the nationalist government, Shanghai is also crucial. It's very, very uh, important. So there's a saying in, in China, when you want to look and uh, understand China for the past 2000 years, visit Xi'an, when you wanted to the past 500 years, go to Beijing, when you want to understand the uh, China in the past uh, uh, 100 years, come to Shanghai. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating issue. I, there were times I would be in Shanghai and you know, the especially because I was working in the financial services sector, that the liberalization that was occurring in Shanghai was somewhat inconsistent with what was occurring in the rest of the country. And I worried that Shanghai would be getting too far out front, uh, especially in Pudong and creating risks for policies there. Yeah. Well, I share with your sentiment, yes. The, the um, you talk in the book about kind of civil society in, in, um, in Shanghai and its effect on kind of diversity in Shanghai. You also mentioned, um, you know, the 2017 foreign NGO law, where the Chinese kind of overreacted to a handful of foreign NGOs, which they felt were a threat and ended up deeply impacting foreign civil society in China. How does that kind of fit into the, the theme of your book? Well, Steve, I'm so glad that you have raised this question. As you and I agree, the ongoing deterioration of the US-China relationship is the result of years of disputes, disappointment, disillusionment, and the distrust between the two countries. And both sides should join some lessons from one's own policy mistakes and missteps. So in Beijing, there had been uh, increasing political control over international educational and cultural exchanges prior to the Trump administration beginning its uh, decoupling policies on this front. You know, although it's not that scale in terms of decoupling like the US side, and also it maybe the overall purpose is not to decouple, but they want to control. But that has a huge impact, negative impact. So the PRC 2017 foreign NGO law uh, create extensive restrictions on foreign educational institutions and the civil society organization, including National Committee uh, of uh, 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 US-China Relations, including Brookings, the Carnegie, uh, among many other institutions, including a lot of NGO, uh, smaller NGO uh, institutions want to engage with China. Most of them actually are China-friendly and not, uh, should not be seen as you intended, but you really make them very, very difficult. And uh, uh, these are institutions uh, uh, really want to engage in educational culture and people-to-people -people exchanges. But unfortunately, you hit them so badly. You created atmosphere, hurt uh, China's own friends. I think this, if there's a lesson China should learn, this is one. And also that's a reaffirm 
that, that, that my book is that, that certainly uh, my main audience is American audience. So I'm very critical about the US policy toward China. But on the other hand, it's not right to just blame everything to the United States. It's not just a one-way street. I think China should learn lesson. If you really wanted to uh, put things back on the right track, I think this is kind of a you know, uh, uh, self-review. Uh, it's very, very important. So that NGO laws uh, certainly is one of them. Yeah. Uh, one of the other great parts of the book are the, these kind of nuggets that are, that are buried in the book and then uh, the charts that follow it up. But um, you, know, you write that there are now 3,651,400 students and scholars have studied abroad and returned to China. I had not heard, to me, that's, a, that's a, quite a stunning statistic. Talk about the influence of those returnees. And then you have this incredible chart where you talk about the senior people in kind of Shanghai's uh, educational institutions and virtually close to 100% of them have, have studied abroad and returned to Shanghai. Well, uh, indeed, I mean, these are stunning uh, statistics between 1978 and uh, 2019 about 6 million PRC students studied abroad with a significant percentage coming to the United States. Uh, by 2018, over 3.6 million Chinese students and scholars who study abroad had returned to China, representing 85% of all Chinese students and scholars who had completed a degree uh, program. Of course, some of the 15% uh, or more that decided to stay in the United States, like myself as a, as a student and found a new home in the United States. Now, uh, I will show you some slides, but let me first uh, mention that uh, Chinese nationals educated abroad, especially those who study in the United States, have emerged as a distinguished elite group in the PRC. Uh, foreign educated returnees uh, have gained growing influence in all walks of life in China, especially in Shanghai, the country's frontier city for international uh, engagement. You know, 10 years ago, almost uh, about 20, a quarter of the foreign educated returnees uh, decide to live and stay in China. I do not have the new data. The data was 2009. Now, in chapter eight of the book, um, um, you know, impact of education exchange returnees in Shanghai, I begin with um, a question, what do the foreign people in Shanghai in common? Uh, that includes internationally famous artist Chen Danqing, former Minister of Health, China's former, uh, former Minister of Health, Chen Zhu, China's most popular late night talk show host, Jing Xing, a transgender woman, uh, uh, Asia's number one venture capitalist, Sun Nanpeng, former Shanghai mayor, Xu Kuangdi, the person I mentioned earlier, basketball guru, Yao Ming, the founder of China's uh, first opinion poll company, uh, Yuan Yue, China's most popular medical doctor in uh, combating COVID-19, uh, Zhang Wenhong, and the former IMF Deputy Director Zhu Ming, our mutual friend, they are all foreign educated returnees. Now, without counting for the impact of foreign education, present day Shanghai is incomprehensible. Now, for your question about the returnees in Shanghai, you know, high education, let me just give you one set of statistics from my research. You have a previous quote, it's also correct. It's almost sometimes it's almost uh, the professors, sometimes the top universities, almost 100%. Now in, nine, in 2019, a couple of years ago, this is a study I conducted. I mean, the top administrators 
of the uh, top 10 universities in Shanghai. That including president and vice president and provost and et cetera. 92% of them are foreign educated retainees. Now, definition is you uh, study, you got a degree from foreign country or you study foreign country by, uh, for more than a one year as a visiting professor, visiting scholar, and et cetera. Now, let me show you some of the, some of the uh, overall things. Um, so uh, let me uh, show um, that one. Uh, students and scholars studying yeah. abroad and returning. Yeah, so that's the, the annual things. The blue is uh, uh, students sent out, orange is those returns. That's each year, this is to all countries, uh, not just the United States. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's the chart I made that is quite remarkable. You can see particularly recent years and um, uh, that trend is really, um, it's truly a remarkable study abroad movement. In so it, it's, yeah. it's gone up roughly at the same rate. <laughs> yeah, it cannot, uh, this is the, the, the rapid growth of PRC students in the United States. You can see in the uh, recent decade increased dramatically. But of course, that's, uh, the number uh, ended in 2018. That actually start from 2019 already start to uh, job. We do not have the new data, uh, partly because of the decoupling policies. You know, as we know that in October 2018, the Trump administration actually had a meeting in the White House. Political team decided to to end the uh, educational exchanges based on the Financial Times uh, report. Eventually, President and the, the U.S. Ambassador to China happened to be new White House. The, uh, you know. Uh, rejected that plan, but otherwise it could end. But of course, COVID-19 also contributed to that. The, uh, the way, yeah. Peggy Blumenthal, I'll let you go on, but Peggy Blumenthal asked yeah. a question, our friend Peggy. Um, is the United States still the first choice of uh, Shanghai students and their parents? Well, um, it's uh, we do not have reliable data, but again, uh, um, a very several things certainly uh, make people have a second thought. We do not know. I, 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 no matter what, I think still a lot of people wanted to come to um, uh, from Shanghai or from the country to United States. But the relative speaking, number will decline, and uh, and, and also not only from Shanghai but from other country, uh, other parts of Shanghai, other parts of the country uh, uh, was, will also decline. But we do not have that number. We already see that that uh, um, uh, uh, applications drop, and uh, also there's a uh, more um, kind of interest to uh, England, Europe, and also uh, Canada and Australia. But this is a period of uncertainty. We do not have reliable. And Peggy, uh, thank you for your fantastic work. Your, 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 uh, your firm really uh, per, per, uh, uh, played an instructional role in promoting educational exchange. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Yeah. Now also let me show this last one. Uh, this Chinese students constitute really 33 uh, percent of the foreign students in the United States. The, the number two countries in India is about 18 percent. You can see the increase. But I think that era uh, probably is coming to an end. Yeah. Now, and, this is the percentage yeah. of Chinese students in the United States as a percentage of all foreign students. Correct. But, but that's, the, the that's the orange. That's the orange the, line. The blue is the total number, the absolute number, the specific number. The orange is the percentage. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. what's the percentage of Chinese students that come to the United States versus the rest of the world? Well, 
we do not know that number because it's inconsistent. We only have randomly a few years based on the data from the Ministry of Education. It's roughly about one third at certain years, but we do not have the overall number. Sometimes it's between 30% to 40% in some years released by the Ministry of Education and et cetera. Now this member as you mentioned include the, uh, those pre-university students, but not include short-term like a three months uh, uh, a kind of training, do not include that. So again, uh, so that's the answer. I, I do not have the, the overall number in terms of these years, but the, the randomly is between one, uh, between like 30% to 40% or, or one third, basically. Yeah. yeah. When we see a normalization in applications, I guess this autumn with the ending of COVID, we'll see, hopefully we'll get a sense of did the Trump era basically reduce uh, Chinese students' interest in coming to study? In yeah, the, the recent things, you know, anti-Asia uh, hate crime also have a very powerful effect. Yeah. There are so many families, they're, they're deeply worried. And, uh, but on the other hand, I mean, China's middle class, is, uh, it's, it's, it's really, we talk about total number, it's between 700 to 400 to 500 million people. Mm-hmm only 10% of them want to come to the United States, still big size, you know, we should, but there's always that, uh, that people wanted to go against the trend. So long the decoupling does not uh, officially happen, I think we uh, still will have the sizable applicants from China, from Shanghai, yeah. yeah. As remarkable, are you, were there more slides you wanted to show? Oh, no, 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 that's fine. I, I, I may use uh, slides that uh, based on what question you ask, yeah. Okay. Um, a lot of uh, slides for this interview. Yeah, yeah, it's it's terrific, and I mean it's it's really to whet everybody's appetite. You have to get the book because it's just full of these very interesting graphs, charts, and data, uh, which which again, there's so much discussion kind of of the theory, and maybe it's because of my financial services background and my investing background. I like the data. I'm much more interested in the data. But speaking of financial services, you have a chapter that kind of um, deals with Shanghai as an international financial center. And we had the, the municipal government early this year kind of say, well, Shanghai has become an international financial center. Well, I guess it depends on your definition to say the least. And does, isn't that an area where Shanghai cannot accomplish what it wants to accomplish because of central government policies? That one of the things, you know, when I was in the financial services area, I needed instantaneous data. No one, if anybody interfered in my data, if it was one second delayed or 10 seconds delayed, that would affect the trading decision, which would theoretically affect the profitability of my, of my organization. Given, and also you, you, there's a need to be able to litigate a dispute fairly, whether it's a, a, the government or a private, uh, sector company. And given what the central government policies are, is Shanghai really ever going to make it as an international financial center? Well, Steve, I fully agree with you that the lack of an independent judiciary or rule of law and interference with communications prevent the implementation of this ambitious plan to make Shanghai a financial center, a global financial center. Uh, there are fundamental tensions between tight political control and the market liberalization. The same can be said to Hong Kong and Shenzhen. 
But uh, my research in Shanghai also show something um, uh, 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 very interesting in terms of interesting dynamics from the angle of the middle class growing efforts to promote the civil society and the legal communities painstaking work to develop a rule of law, including uh, in both the economic and non-economic domains. So we should affect in these kind of uh, development. Now, when I left China to study in the United States in the early, um, in the middle 1980s, there were only around 3,000 lawyers in the PRC, a country of approximately 1 billion people at that time. And all of these lawyers were state officials by definition at that time. By 2018, China had a total of 400,000 um, uh, registered lawyers and the total number of law firms practicing in the country surpassed 30,000 these law firms. Most of them are now administrated outside of the system. And some play the role of protecting the rights for the public against the state. Now, China's legal education and profession are profoundly shaped and influenced by Western legal um, doctrines that have made their way to China through international education changes. Now, a good, a good example is the birth and the growth of China's legal clinics, which were initiated and sponsored by Ford Foundation in the United States. You know, our mutual friend, the, the later Peter Geisner, the son of the uh, son of the uh, Jim Gardner, the uh, Treasury Secretary, played a very important role. In I mean, re I really miss him dearly, you know, uh, 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 Steve. The same can be said about uh, the Roos Foundation and the, another dear friend of the National Committee, Terry Laos. I hope that he is in the audience because I'm still in correspondence with him. I mean, he's a really wonderful man. Now, in recent years, a growing number of the Chinese students who had studied law in Western countries returned to China. Uh, where many now practice law in private law firms. You know, my uh, book also had a study, case study of the Zhongren uh, law firm, one of the top five law, private law firms in Shanghai. 75 of the 120, uh, 112 partners are foreign educated returnees, accounting for two thirds of the total. Among these foreign educated returnees, uh, returnee partners, 64% received their JD degrees in the United States, uh, usually uh, like Columbia and Duke and uh, uh, Berkeley, Harvard, and et cetera, top schools. And most of them have passed the bar exam in New York and California. These are now work, people working in China uh, with, uh, for private firms or for the foreign joint venture. Now, another 25% in that law firm uh, received a law degree in the United Kingdom. Now, with the United States and the other Western countries pressuring China, as, as we know, to meet international norms and the standards, especially in regard to uh, enforcement and the compliance with the intellectual property rights, these Western educated Chinese lawyers may be instrumental in promoting both legal development in China and the cooperation across the Pacific in the years to come. So I'm not that uh, completely pessimistic I also see the other side, like so many things, we should not just simply jump to conclusion. That probably explained, already explained Shanghai, despite it still probably not reach the status like Hong Kong or London or, or New York, of course, still there are a lot of barriers, but already attract a lot of talents, attract a lot of business. So yeah. that's the dimension, we should not just go simplistic to see that the yeah. negative side, yeah.
of the, you know, the issues. I think Shanghai has in place the human talent to become a financial center. And the book lays out, you know, it has a very interesting data on the law firms, you know, not only to one, but many of the others. It's very interesting how you compile that and where all these lawyers studied. And it, it, it lays out the argument that the human talent is there. But in my view, central government policies simply conflict with what is necessary to be a yes. real financial center. Yes. You know, it's partly, it's, it's censorship issues, it's uh, independent judiciary issues. It's also, it's the ability to do research on a company, which you then may have to say, this company's got serious problems, you know, and publish that research. And that is, you know, it's if you don't have an independent media doing that, then fraud goes uncovered because you can't, as an individual, do sufficient research. And then people lose confidence in the capital markets there. Yeah. So China, the central government, Shanghai, unless if they make it some kind of, you know, free data zone where, okay, anything goes in Shanghai, I don't think that's going to happen. Whereas in the rest of China, you couldn't do it. I think there's a there's a maldud in kind of Shanghai's desire to be an international financial center and central government policies, which make implementation of that extremely difficult. I agree. I agree. I mean, my point is just the battle is not over yet. It's ongoing. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And exactly the way you and I talk about what U.S. policy should be doing is enabling those who want reform to accomplish their policy objectives. Absolutely. There are a lot of folks who share our views and the policies that the previous administration took and appear to be taken by the current administration do not enable our friends, whether they're on the standing committee, the Politburo, the Central Committee, (laughs) or their lawyers in Shanghai. So uh, I think you agree with that. Um, Talk, because we're going to start running low on time. Oh, we are running low on time. Um, you have the wonderful few chapters on the avant-garde scene, art scene in, in, uh, uh, in, in Shanghai. Talk briefly about that and why you put that in the book and how it relates to your theme. Well, by definition, avant-garde art is ahead of time. Let me show you one slide. I really want to show you these slides because my favorite chapter is about the, the art things at the um, that in, in, in Shanghai. Let me um, you know, share with you some of the slides. This is, uh, you know, I uh, spent um, a lot of time in China um, in 2019. This is actually the picture I took in December 2019. You know, I happened to visit Mogansan Wushihao, the M50 Creative Park, Shanghai. And uh, I took that photo. And uh, the painting was made uh, 2017 by um, Fujian uh, origin um, uh, uh, artist who live in Shanghai. And uh, the, 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 um, it's a called imprinting of times. I'm really, uh, at that time, over- overwhelmed by that picture. But, uh, but uh, you know, after COVID-19, when I look at my camera, I mean, I, I really astonished by uh, when I saw that again, and uh, uh, artist. <laughs> oh my God, you can see, uh, uh, um, you know, no one could have imagined then that this image would become 
and everyday scene around the world in the coming years. You know, while the artist uh, Wang Chenling probably might not uh, foresee the scale and the scope of the impact of the pandemic of the century we are witnessing now, he apparently that has forecasted uh, in this incredibly powerful piece, the degradation of ecology and the environment in today's world, and the inevitability of the SARS-like SARS -like pandemic, and the loss of expression, emotion, and the compassion in human society resulting with this, this kind of terrible, terrible disasters. Now, I actually uh, started to look at the Shanghai's avant-garde artist uh, a couple of decades ago. Um, and uh, I sh it shocked me early on to see uh, the strong critical foresight of this artist's work. Uh, not just to single out the authorities, but also point to globalization and its side effects as the, you know, the, 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 the sand castle that I use as ever you know, the, the beginning of the book, book. And also they criticize uh, of the economic and the demographical disparities, environmental disasters and the degradation, single-minded profit seeking, Western hypocrisies and the arrogance of the US hegemonic thinking. Now, many of those are reflection of China's post-colonial status and um, it's a globalized present and its need for complex societal and international negotiation. Now, let me show you, let me want to show some other uh, pieces. This is by famous Shanghai artist, Zhou Tiehai. I, you know, I follow his work for almost 20 years, more than 20 years. This is a placebo uh, yeah. uh, that's famous that, uh, you know, uh, certainly in that piece that uh, uh, Zhou Tiehai reimagined a capitalist yuppie as the Carmo, resembling Joe Carmo, who is the uh, iconic image of the American cigarettes that the China has imported. And uh, Zhou Tiehai's cool Carmel reflects uh, the artist's the sarcastic point that a godfather uh, figure, uh, figure's protection is necessary for Chinese people to stay safe. You can see the sarcasm uh, in that one. Now, the, the other one uh, that I, I saw actually immediately after he, he uh, finished that piece is uh, Mayor Giuliani. Uh, the piece was made in 2002. Uh, it's a, a big piece that I also took a lot of photos at that time. This one is downloaded from the art gallery. So certainly when I saw it, I immediately thought this, he tried to challenge American sentiments in the post 9-11 era that uh, as it marks the hero worship in the United States. As I grew up in China, I saw so many the more like figures like these things. So he did the same things, but this time director uh, uh, you know, challenge the United States. Now, some prominent Shanghai avant-garde artists are less critical of the United States. Uh, they point to the need that China should better understand outside the world. Uh, my favorite artist, his name is Ding Yi. Uh, this is, you can see, this exhibition is outside Washington, you know, in the uh, Kennedy, uh, uh, what's it, uh, it's, a, it's Kennedy Hall, right? Um, uh, he exhibited, exhibited a few years ago, I mean, 10 years ago. And, uh, uh, Ding Yi's, uh, this is a Rui, as we know, it's, a, it's based on the Chinese traditional, you know, Rui, which served as a self-defense tool during war. That's the, the origin of the term, uh, the, 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 the material. And in the contemporary context, Rui is widely considered to be auspicious 
you know, used in folk communities and also mansions in people's home alike. Now, this piece conveyed the message that when traditional images are enlarged multiple times, their meaning and the impression can change completely. Another piece that- We're gonna run out of time. Okay. Probably oh, let me finish. This, and I want to get to some audience questions. Okay, let's let, uh, finish the last one. That's a Tai you, you and I all know about Tai Chi. I mean, your audience, I mean, those familiar with Chinese culture, all know Tai Chi. In the Chinese conception, Tai Chi is often characterized as a gentle, indirect, and slow moving, and relaxed, and reflecting the Chinese Taoism or Taoist worldview of yin yang uh, balance. But the, the posture of the Tai Chi practitioner here appears highly rigid, intense, and antagonistic. So Ding Yi intends to show the conception must be altered when the circumstances have profoundly changed. For Ding Yi, it is not just the West that should develop a more updated balanced assessment of China's ongoing transformation, which, which is of course needed. Equally important, China also must better understand how it it's, its changing status may affect and be perceived by the outside world, especially United States. Now, these pieces highlight the importance of empathy in the rapidly changing global landscape from Chinese artists' uh, uh, point of view. Over Great. Um, let me ask two audience questions, and then I want to close with two, two questions. So got to keep the answers brief. One's from Stephen Hu, who does research in Shanghai University of California at Santa Barbara. Uh, is there a particular spirit of Shanghai that has, that has influence on Chinese political elites or the middle class there? I say this because most people who live in Shanghai are not from Shanghai or Shanghainese. And then Lawrence Sullivan from Adelphi asks, how many officials of the Xi Jinping anti-corruption campaign were from Shanghai? Um, well, a couple of things that uh, certainly the Chinese use the term Hai Pai, you know, Shanghai culture vis-a-vis -vis Jing Pai. This is not uh, something new. It has been around for 100 years since the May 4th movement, probably earlier. Um, so try to make a point because of uh, as immigrant, immigrant city, it's a, it's a coastal city, uh, it's a strong foreign influence. But also my book emphasized that the Shanghai has the three images, identities, local culture, national, national culture, and the cosmopolitan culture. They coexist together, uh, make Shanghai um, uh, 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 quite uh, um, unique. Unique in a way that there's high level of tolerance, inclusiveness, and particularly, uh, um, you know, um, uh, you're absolutely right that, um, that the Shanghai uh, many of people in Shanghai not really uh, originally from Shanghai. For example, I was born in Shanghai, but my father came from Ningbo, my mother came from Suzhou. So basically, that all these people that are from outside. So uh, that constitutes Shanghai very much uh, similar to New York in, in certain ways. So that makes Shanghai is more emphasized on entrepreneurism and uh, flexibility, um, practice, not ideological. And the less concern, actually very paradoxical, less concern about political things. And then people make a comparison that the, uh, the author of the so-called city monsoon, 
uh, he said that Be Be Beijing people love to talk about politics, politics like the salt without it, the life is tasteless. Of course, it's a, it's a very funny quote, but uh, Shanghai people love to talk about business. You know, that, but this certainly has some tourism. You see the different, uh, you know, in Shanghai restaurant, a Beijing restaurant, you do see the contrast and et cetera. So that's probably is kind of Shanghai's unique culture contribute to its also current status. Rather, why this is from the peer city, right? Now, the second question about Xi Jinping's anti-corruption. Uh, one key person is Yang Xiaodu. He is the person next to Wang Qishan, the, the Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign. He was from Shanghai. Um, he was born in Shanghai and also went to Shanghai Medical School. Actually, I know him uh, reasonably well. We, when I visited Shanghai along with the later Shirley, uh, Shirley uh, Yang, uh, that we had a lunch together uh, in uh, the Shanghai Expo, uh, um, the things. At that time, he, he was a kind of a standing committee of Shanghai. Later, he moved on. He also spent many years in Tibet. He's currently the power bureau member and also in charge of anti-corruption at the moment, Yang Xiaodu. But other than that, not so many from Shanghai because anti-corruption, it's a, it's a, uh, the, 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 the chief person is Wang Qishan. Yang Xiaodu play more less, less important, far less important uh, uh, a role. Along with him, there's several other people. I, I, this is uh, um, you know, my answer to, your question, uh, to the question about the anti-corruption in Shanghai. Yes, Shanghai is relevant, Shanghai is important, but uh, probably not important as uh, Xi Jinping's own role and Wang Qishan at that time. Last question will be at the end, towards the end of the book, uh, you kind of try to summarize where we are, you know, the decouplers, those who still believe in constructive reconciliation. You know, I, I think you, I think I know where you come out on these, but you try to be rather fair. In fact, I would argue you were overly fair to the decouplers. You seem to agree with the statement that the Chinese economic miracle in the reform era has come at the relative expense of America's economic status in the world. Do, do you agree with that view? Because you said you're not surprised that this is a view. Um, and then the, the, the part of that question is at the, at the very end of the book, um, you, know, you have recommendations for the Biden administration. So my question would be, um, are they following those recommendations? Well, well the, as we know that FBI director, um, Christoph Ray uh, described that uh, when he uh, uh, still under the Trump administration, I think he probably continue to hold the same view now uh, that uh, actually he said that the global economic landscape change in, um, in China's favor, you know, uh, over the past uh, two or three decades represents one of the largest transfer of wealth in human history. I actually agree with that assessment. And um, the rapid rise and the expansion of the middle class in China documented in my book shows this remarkable transfer of wealth. The middle class in the United States has gradually been shrinking. Although the reason is uh, complicated, not just a big, I want to blame China. No, I do not want to blame China. But the fact is American middle class is shrinking at the time China's middle class is expanding very, very quickly. U.S. from 70% of the American population in the post-World War years to 61% of the early, uh, in the early 1970s to 55% in 2000 and to about 50% today. Now, 
according to the statistic provided by World Inequality Database, I frequently use that to Chinese friends, that between 1980 to 2014, the United States, only the highest income group, top 20% benefit from globalization. Their income increased by 100% to 200%, that group, top 20. But all other four income groups had a little to no improvement. So that's very, very important. Uh, that explains why Donald Trump gets some support by you know, middle-class voters. Um, on the contrary, all five income groups increase in China increase significantly. That explains the different views of the economic liberalization between the Chinese public and the US American public today. Now, despite the validity of some of the concerns and criticism mentioned you know, above, uh, the sen sen sensationalism uh, still up by the couplers about China's rise as the uh, US uh, is a threat to US and a threat to world peace, and along with American excessive response to hold China back through all valuable means, I think it is overreactive and misguided. So while the primary audience, as you know, that as I mentioned of my book is American and uh, the English speaking world, I do want the Chinese readers to understand some valid criticism of China by the outside world. Now for your question about my, um, I do have the, my last chapter has the 10 recommendations, five to Chinese. But, but, let me just stop on, the, on yeah. that. You know, the fact that the American working class has not benefited really from globalization. Um, and let's say that Ray means from 1990, that is based upon what's gone on domestically, that the inequality has increased and that the wealthy have benefited and the working class have not, but that's not really related to China. That China's share, that, that America's share of world GDP in 1990 was 26%. In 2020, it's 24%. There's been a 2% change. So China may have benefited at the expense of Europe, at the expense of Japan, at the expense of others, but not really at the expense of the United States. It's the wealthy that benefited at the expense of lower income Americans, at the expense of manufacturing jobs. So well, I, I agree with you, Steve. So it's not right to blame everything to China. Uh, I'm absolutely with you, but the, the result uh, is astonishing. Then people may not make it that, 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 that kind of uh, logic because they think that we are um, you know, shrinking middle-class, China is expanding. So politicians use that to, to criticize China. But the, the number you mentioned that also, a statistic may, be, may not be complete. Let me show you. Did you see, could you see the chart? Yes. Okay, you can yes. see this is, a, you mentioned about from 1990s, the number yes. is correct. But you look at the, from the 1961, you know, US GDP uh, certainly declined, China increased. But, but you, know, you can't use 1961. China was had nothing in the in, right. in but the let's world. Let's see more. Let's and see more. It didn't join. You, you have to use 1990 wow. because that is when China joined okay. the WTO Fine. and began to play let's a see. material part in the world economy. It's to, to go back to you know 1960. I mean, China was effectively zero. Wow. 
that's fair. That's fair. But let's look at the trajectory. Uh, let's look at the trajectory of PPP. You know, um, uh, this is uh, by the IMF, the group. Look at the trajectory. If China maintain five to six, five to four percent, you know, somewhere between uh, four to six percent, uh, it's a red line. U.S. if three percent is the middle. U.S. if two percent growth or trajectory. That's astonishing if that's true. Now also let's see the pies. Uh, this is the GDP, uh, real GDP. Yeah. Uh, let's see the difference. The United States is still way ahead of China, 24% the number you use. China is uh, 14%. But look at the PPP. China is already surpassed the United States. So these numbers may differ from the number you use. For American public, certainly some people become very, very nervous about these things. Certainly, I not necessarily agree with all these things, but I also want to tell the Chinese friend, they should have the empathy to see how US look at the China's uh, rise and the look at the China's economic practice. And uh, uh, because politicians will constantly use these numbers along with some other numbers to do that. Now for your final question is that, uh, that the Biden administration, I should say Biden administration is still the relative early stage, not even for four months now. And also their China strategy is under review, probably will compete sometimes in summer, maybe longer, right? So I still wanted to, uh, to be open about that. Certainly I agree some of the policy approach. I, I wish, I hope that uh, we'll, be, we'll fix the, uh, Trump's uh, problems and uh, et cetera, but uh, not too many things have been fixed. But on the other hand, that we probably should be patient to particularly also understand why it's so difficult but I'm glad, I'm very happy to see that the Biden put American middle-class renew as the uh, overarching domestic agenda. I think this is a very, very encouraging. Now, um, let me conclude. I know that the time is, uh, is up. Now in this uh, really period of uncertainty that uh, especially in the wake of the pandemic of the century, the two largest middle-class countries in the world need to find a way to reshape their long-term engagement, not abandon engagement, but reshape uh, the long-term engagement. The United States and China should strive to have a vision for shared future, confidence in their collective strengths and the humanity, humility and the humanity in their beliefs. This is the final words of my book. Now I want to use that as final words for this uh, 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 conversation. I learned a great deal from very uh, sharp questions, and sometimes we agree, sometimes we, we disagree. And rarely, rarely do we disagree. <laughs> okay, back to you. You have final words or, or final things to say. Yeah. Well, this has been this has been a wonderful discussion, which I hope has whetted the audience appetite to reading your book, uh, Middle Class Shanghai: Reshaping U.S.-China Engagement. It's it's really. Uh, a must read. And I hope folks in the Biden administration read it too and, and are able to adopt uh, the nuance in policy that you really uh, strongly recommend that we keep sight that Beijing is not the, the, the first, second, third, and final part of China, uh, that we need to look at the rest of China and we need to certainly uh, look at Shanghai. It's a, it's a remarkable contribution to the way we should be thinking about China. And I can't thank you enough for all, for this conversation and for all that you do for us. But thank you so thank much. You.
And thank you all for joining us on this absolutely gorgeous afternoon in New York. Thank you so much, Steve. Great. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.